Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and today I'm welcoming Jeffrey Marks to the podcast. Jeffrey is a longtime mystery fan and freelancer. After numerous mystery author profiles for the Armchair Detective, Mystery Scene, and other genre publications, he chose to chronicle the short but full life of mystery writer Craig Rice. That biography, Who Is That Lady?, encouraged him to write mystery fiction. His works include Atomic Renaissance, Women Mystery Writers of the 40s and 50s, a group biography of women, including lesbian authors, who had written in the years following World War II and their impact on the genre. Marx had corresponded with many of them during his time working on the Rice biography. He also published a biography of mystery author and critic Anthony Boucher, entitled Anthony Boucher. He received a grant while working on that book. It was nominated for an Agatha and, fittingly, won an Anthony. Marx is currently working on a biography of Earl Stanley Gardner, a book on Gardner's work with his pre-innocence project, Court of Last Resort, and a dual biography of the two men who wrote as Ellery Queen. He has also written mystery fiction. His earliest works were short fiction, and he's won some regional awards for those works. He published four short story anthologies on various themes, including Canine Crimes and Canine Christmas from Random House, which included Mark's stories about a queer detective. He's currently working on a series of semi-autographical mystery short stories that will appear in Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine. These tackle issues surrounding gay men in the 1970s. He's won a number of regional awards, including the Barnes & Noble Prize, and was nominated for a Maxwell Award, an Edgar, three Agathas, two McCavities, and three Anthony Awards. Marks retired from teaching in 2020, and today he writes from his home in Cincinnati, which he shares with his husband and three dogs. Welcome to the podcast, Jeffrey Marks. Well, thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because, as I mentioned, I read Atomic Women um, and loved it. Um, but I want to start at the beginning, as I always do on this podcast, and talk about writing. And when the the desire to write first started for you? Um, I have tried to trace it back, and it's as long as I can remember um, when I was very, very young, and I'm 62 now, so we're talking many decades ago, um, my grandmother worked in a newspaper, and she would bring home the little pads of paper and, like, notepad-type things. And I, back even before I could put sentences together, I would draw pictures to tell stories. And so that's kind of where it got started, was just that I wanted to be a storyteller, we have lots of storytellers in my family, and so it kind of runs in the family. And as I grew up, um, it became more writing. And in my teens, I discovered mystery. And, oh, it was love at first sight. And so um, I started reading heavily in the mystery genre when I was, I would say, 14 or 15. 
Mm-hmm. And being the good saver that I was, I could go to the used bookstore and buy four books for a dollar, or I could spend 99 cents of that dollar and buy a new paperback. And so what I did was I went to the used bookstore and would buy four paperbacks for the dollar. And so when we talk more about some of my writing, this is where it comes from. The fact that this was the early 70s in which I was buying these. A lot of these from paperbacks were from the 40s and 50s. Mm-hmm. So those were the authors I met first. Those are the authors I loved. And so that's kind of where when I write about them, that comes back to that same era. Well, it's interesting because the writing you do is is nonfiction, and then you also write fiction, and I, they're two different skill sets. Oh, yeah. Um, but they're all in the mystery genre. So let's talk about your nonfiction writing first. Um, and you know, you and I are around the same age, so the same thing would happen to me. Is you, you discovered these writers who seem current to you because you're buying their books in the seventies and who understands, but um, it was a very different era um, in mystery fiction than was then and certainly is now. So talk to me about falling in love with some of those forties and fifties authors. Um, I, like I said, I read everything I could get my hands on. Um, You know me, I have a sense of humor so immediately fell in love with Craig Rice because there was humor all over the place. Um, in Atomic Renaissance, I talk about Phoebe Atwood Taylor, mm-hmm. also a very amusing author. And so I got very interested in comedic writing. And so that was one of my first loves coming out of that was that who are the authors who are going to not only make me think, but also who are going to make me laugh. And so those were a lot of the authors that I got involved with at that time. And Craig Rice, who you know, you went on to write a biography mm-hmm. of him. What what about him made you want to go from fan to biographer? Actually, Craig is a woman. Oh. So one of the things I was interested in um, was the fact that she had to do this, and people still do this today. You see authors who use initials, um, or they'll use a non-gendered name so that they have this. Um, and that kind of interested me as how things really haven't changed that much in some ways. And I'm sure I don't have to tell you that, but <laughs> um, <laughs> things, some, things have changed a lot for women, but other things have not changed at all. And the whole wanting to write under a man's name. So that kind of puzzled me. Um, the interesting thing when I started doing is I had a very short list of authors that I was interested in writing about. And Craig was on that list. And so what I did was I went ahead and I did like a little short biography of each one of those, maybe a couple thousand words, um, to see what intrigued me about the author and what I saw would be some obstacles or road bumps in trying to write about the author. When I got to Craig, every time I found a short biography of Craig, it was entirely different from the last. So I had three or four different biographies of Craig, and they could not agree on anything. They did not agree on how many children she had. They did not agree on how many husbands she had. Um, Just on and on to what the things, and I was like, how did this woman live in the 20th century? Same century that we lived in, and how did she possibly get away with these people not knowing these basic details about her? Yeah. So that was a real mystery within a mystery to me, and that really appealed to me. 
well, first of all, I apologize for not knowing more about her, but how did she do that? I mean, nowadays it would be even trickier because of the internet, but how did she do that? Or why did she do that? A lot of it was, sadly, she had a drinking problem. And so she tended to move from place to place. She got thrown out of houses, got thrown out of boyfriend's houses. And so there was never a paper trail. When I go to look at Earl Stanley Gardner's papers, there in the University of Texas, there are 635 boxes <gasps> of his material. So you want to compare that to Craig Rice. Um, and all that I was able to find, and this is courtesy of Margaret Marin, who I just still love to death. Um, yeah. She sent me 300 pages of correspondence with Craig that wow. she had accumulated because she had thought about doing a biography at one point too. And she sent those to me and she said, this is all I was ever able to find. Good luck. <laughs> and so all of that was like, wow, how, how do you make a book out of, you know, 300 pages of letters? And so then there was a lot of digging and this was before the internet. So this meant I had to travel to these places and visit these places. And it was a lot of fun, but it was also a lot of work. Now, was this sort of research and writing part of what you did as a job? Were you trained in this? How did you come upon these skills? Because it's no. not simple. <laughs> no, um, I Yes, I worked um, for a couple of years at a magazine. Um, I worked somewhere else doing public relations work, which is a lot of interviews and putting out those kind of things. So I did have some background in that. I had actually went, I have a degree in IT, which I know, makes no sense. But I switched over to a magazine, then to some PR, and then I taught English for almost 20 years. Yeah. And so there's nothing like knowing where your commas go if you have to teach it. <laughs> Although it's still confusing. Still, yeah. <laughs> I still have moments where my my commas are a little bit, <laughs> they're yes. having children on the page, and I'm not sure how that happened. Um so you, so such an interesting background, such an interesting way into this. And you talk about Margaret Marin and meeting other authors and sort of finding a community that way yes. um, through these. Mm -hmm. But you're also a fiction writer. So how did you develop the fiction writing skills? Um, I had taken some creative writing classes in college and master's level, um, but it was really looking into these works in so much depth. Because I was reading these books six, seven, eight times in a row. Yeah. Breaking down, this is what worked. This is what didn't work. This is what she could have changed to make this better. This is what was perfect as it was. And so those kind of things, with kind of a master class in learning how to write comedic mysteries mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. by doing that. And so that was a lot of fun doing, but it was also kind of an education. And when I was done, I'm like, you know, I think maybe I could do this too. Well, and comedic mysteries are an extra skill set. I mean, writing yeah. funny is not easy. No. No. <laughs> no <it isn't. laughs> Especially universally funny. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can have regional funny things or specific or whatever, but something that just makes people laugh, it's really challenging. How did you hone those skills? I mean, reading people who are good at it is a great way of doing it, but how did you hone those skills for yourself? Like I said, my family is a bunch of storytellers, and there is a lot of wit in that family and jokes. And so you kind of, I kind of learned that just from home. 
And mm-hmm. so just having that and then looking at it through the lens of this is what worked in the book and this is what didn't and seeing the kind of humor that did work. And so my favorite is actually the, like the situational where the char- mm-hmm. main character is put into an awkward situation where they don't know what's going on and they're just trying their best and fumbling around those that's the kind of mystery that I do like to see. And so that's kind of what I lean towards. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those are fun to write. And do you still find or think of yourself as inspired by the forties, fifties authors? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you look at the current projects I'm working on, one is the court of last resort, which was a project that Earl Stanley Gardner, who wrote the Perry Mason books was mm-hmm. a lawyer before um, he became an author. And so one of the things he was fascinated with were loopholes in the law. And so he loved, he was a quick reader. He was quick to understand the law. And just the way his mind worked, he was quick to see how he could manipulate that into working for his clients. And so when it got into this, he also knew other people could use these kind of loopholes in the law for bad as well as good. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of one of the things that he got into looking at was, you know, when were some times where this had happened to people and that kind of led him to working on the court of last resort. And you said 600 and some odd boxes, 35 boxes of material in the, yeah. And so are, have they been cataloged? I mean, how are are you, Um, you know, interested in certain aspects of them? How are you even You know, that's overwhelming to think about. Yes, it is. They have cataloged large parts of it, mostly around the television show, because the Perry Mason show is what a lot of people Mm -hmm. want to go and look at for this. So a lot of the boxes were scripts. Every script that came out, Earl Stanley Gardner read over, made corrections to, and sent back before it was um, done. Wow. And so all of those are there. And so that is all cataloged very nicely. The radio show, which was prior to that, was also cataloged. Um, Some of the correspondence, especially regarding some of his early works, not so much. So one of my best finds down there, which I worked on, was that they brought me out a brown paper bag, just like you get at the grocery store, full of his correspondence. (laughs) And so that was some of the best material I had. Because no one had ever really bothered to go through a grocery bag before. And so there was all sorts of good stuff in there. Yeah. I mean, his voice, if nothing else. I mean, just mm-hmm. uh, understanding that. And what about him intrigues you? I mean, what what about, or I mean, Perry Mason, the show I know we all know and love and, you know, they just did a reboot and things. I mean, it's generations have watched Raymond Burr as, as Perry Mason. It's a fabulous show. Um, But what about him intrigues you enough to spend this time and to do this work? Well, I joke with my friends that all roads lead to Craig Rice. (laughs) If we were to draw a map of mystery fiction from that era, I would put like those little pieces of yarn, you know how they do when they're solving a case. And everything that I have done since that has been in some way, shape or form related to her. Um, Craig and was the editor of Los Angeles Murders, which was a series of regional true crime cases. She had been invited to work on the Chicago Murders one because one of the places she had lived was Chicago. And then later she lived in Los Angeles. And so she wanted to be the editor for one. 
um, Earl Stanley Gardner did not live too far from Los Angeles. He lived in Temecula. So he was asked to do it. And in the correspondence that I had, they had gone on at hammers and tongs because he was the traditional lawyer. And Craig's like, oh, come on, you know, just wing it. And he was not a wing it kind of guy, especially with the law. <laughs> and so I was kind of intrigued by that because here was someone who still was very much involved in the law and writing and every other thing that he did. And the idea of 635 boxes versus, you know, the 300 pages, I was like, wow, someone did something with him. Everything would be there. And yeah. so that was kind of what led me in that direction. Yeah. What were his like active years? I think since birth, he was active. <laughs> He's the most energetic person I've ever met, or not met, but have written about, because um, he just was always on the go. Um, he wow. started writing pulp magazine articles back in the early 20s. Wow. So, And he was still a full-time lawyer at that point. So he would come home after working a full day, get home about 6 p.m., eat dinner, and then he would write until 2 or 3 in the morning. Mm. His goal was 10,000 words a day, which is, yeah, you raised your eyebrows and I saw that <laughs> because it, wow. is, it is a lot of words. It's a lot of words. I mean, for, for me, that's a good week. <laughs> Seriously, good week. <laughs> and he was doing that daily. And so wow. he published over 600 pulp fiction stories before he decided to switch over into novels. And or that was around the beginning of the early 30s, and he wrote multiple novels a year until he passed away at age, or in 1970. Wow. Yeah. 10,000 words a day. I mean, I can't even imagine. It is amazing. Um, and when was she active? When was... Um... Craig was active from 1939 which is when her first mm -hmm. novel came out. Um, she had written for newspapers before, but they were mostly crime articles and not much there, but um, that I've been able to find. And then she passed away in 1957. Wow. So Shorter career, for sure. Yep. Yeah. Well, much um, shorter, but she still was fairly... Um, she suffered from uh, bipolar, and so she was had very good times where she would stay up all night writing and then she would have times where she wanted nothing to do with it. And so, yeah. yeah. Well, it's interesting again, using our current lens of understanding yeah. for people and their journeys and understanding how some help would, some support, some medication would have made her life so much easier um, for her. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's, it's must be a little bit heartbreaking to sort of see her struggle and know that that's, yeah, part of the it journey. is because she kind of played into that because she always needed money, always wanted money. And so when she hit that manic stage, it was like good. And so yeah. she would boom, 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 two or three books would come out. And yeah. and that was kind of the thing. But um, yeah. Um, and you're also working on a, a book about Ellery Queen and I the am. two people. Yep. Yeah. And what's the interest again? <laughs> I just, again, one of the authors I loved and read. Quite a bit yeah. when I was in my teens. Again, they knew Craig Rice, and so I got. <laughs> but they were both very kind to her. They didn't put up with a lot of grief from her, but at the same time, um, they recognized that she was not well and that 
Um, they were very kind to her and helped when they could. So I mean, that was, so I thought, you know, most of the people I've done have been women. And so I was kind of interested in doing the male perspective too. And so that was mm-hmm. a little different. So mm-hmm. that's been, especially since it's um, two men working together. Um, yeah. And I'm fascinated by this whole collaborative thing. I sit in my office day by day by myself. And I think part of that is that I'm fascinated by married couples who do this, people who decide that they're going to do collaborative typewriting. And it's fascinating to me how this gets done. It's fascinating to me, too, because I, I don't understand how you don't kill the other person. But <laughs> I know. <laughs> Um, so I, you know, and of course there was the Ellery Queen TV show from the seventies, which was also wonderful. And I wish was on DVD or streaming somewhere because it is, is it? Now I know what I can get you for Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Is it available on DVD? Yes. Oh, and it is, it was on streaming. I don't know if it still is or not, but I will check. And email you so you can let me know. Yes, I will let yeah, you know. I, I will give myself a present because um, that was a one. I thought that was a wonderful series. Yes. You know, I would watch that with my parents, and you know, oh yeah, it was Jim Hutton turning to the thing and say, "Well, have you guessed?" You know? <laughs> and that and that type of twist was what they did in the books too. And so they kind of yeah. broke that fourth wall and actually talked to the people. So okay, it's time for you to tell me who did this. Yeah. Yeah, and truly the puzzle mystery writers uh, who who played fair and did yes. everything they were supposed to do mm-hmm. and everything else. So you are writing about these wonderful writers from then, yeah. um, and you are immersing yourself in you know those those paperbacks from the forties and fifties. But tell me about your own journey as a writer. I'm fascinated, you know, about the the canine perspective, but I'm also this series that you're writing now for Ellery Queen mm-hmm. about um, a queer man in the 70s, yes. which is also very specific. And again, we're the same age, and I've been thinking about that mm-hmm. 70s to 80s to, you know, when we came of age, which was later 70s, early 80s, and, and you know, the, the difference in the world. So write, talk to me about that journey for you. Um, well, like I said, I had started writing the mysteries shortly after the Craig Rice book was finished. While I was shopping the Craig Rice book, I sold the um, mystery novel. So they came out within three months of each other. Um, And then the same thing happened again. The second mystery novel came out two months separated from Atomic Renaissance. And there was so much traveling and so many book events. And at the time that that was over, I was just like, I need to pick something and focus on it because I just can't do this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I decided to work on the nonfiction. Since mm-hmm. I had the background working with magazines, working with PR, I was felt more comfortable that I could do that. Um, for me, it's easier because if I'm on the go or was working as a teacher, if I had like a free period, which was maybe once a week, <laughs> but, um, at the same time, I could pull up one chapter of a nonfiction book and mm-hmm. monkey around with it, edit it, do what needed to be done. Um, and I felt that I really couldn't do that as easily with fiction where the whole plot stretches out before you 
and you have to make sure that what's done in chapter one matches up with what's done in chapter 15 and that sort of thing. Um, mm -hmm. So it was easier for me. Um, so I just decided to do that. And then that's where the Anthony Boucher book came from was making that decision and then moving ahead with that. So you had fiction coming out at the same time as nonfiction yeah. <clears throat> and, and, you know, you're trying to position yourself and talk to yourself. Do you wish if you could have a, a machine that went back, do you wish that you'd been able to separate those a little bit more? So you could have been the fiction writer for a while before you were the nonfiction writer. Were you okay with it being combined? Cause it's two entirely different <clears throat> worlds and your nonfiction was getting acclaim and, yeah. and, you know, you, it takes away from, you know, building up your fiction life, right. I would imagine. Um, it did, but I think in doing both of those things at once and kind of juggling that it's, even if I went back and changed things, that at some point I would still have to make that decision. And yeah. it might've been two years later or three years later or five years later, but it would still end up being that I would have to make, what am I going to be when I grow up? I still right. can't answer. So <laughs> I think sometimes it'll put that on my tombstone. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I don't know that we have to make those decisions as writers, right? We can constantly That's change our mind until true. the end. <laughs> I hope so, at least. Um, the reason that the stories that you mentioned that are now coming out came to be. Actually, I'm going to blame COVID for it. Um, I was working diligently on the projects, the nonfiction projects, and they shut down all the university libraries. Yeah. And so for two years, I did not have any new material to work on. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things I started doing, I had played around with doing something to discuss what it was like at that age. So right on the that cusp of being an adult, but also right at the cusp of the start of the AIDS crisis. Yeah. And so um, I see so many things and the representations of them um, kind of sketchy. Um, mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to just in some way tell the story of this is what it was kind of like, mm -hmm. at least from my perspective. And mm -hmm. again, those that would have been a nonfiction topic and the libraries were closed. And I'm like, how am I going to do this if I don't do this? nonfiction. And I'm like, well, you could do fiction. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the idea of doing this is the, it's still going to be there in terms of what it was like, but there's going to be a crime involved with it somehow. And do you, and they're short stories. It's not going to be a novel or a series or anything. They're short I have stories. not. I've had a couple of people ask me that since the first story is about to come out any day. Um, but I have not given that any thought. I'm having a lot of fun because each story, in addition to um, everything else that's going on, um, since the main character is me, there is also going to be a little bit of a discussion of a particular mystery author in each one. Oh, fun. So the first one deals a little bit with Agatha Christie and collecting Agatha Christie, which is something I do. And so um, that deals a little bit with that. Um, the next one is going to be, I was actually working on it just before we got together here <laughs> to talk. And so um, it's going to have an Ellery Queen kind of clue. Yeah. And then the third one is going to be John Dixon Carr. So it's going to be a locked room um, and it's going to be a little bit of fun because it's going to be 
some elements that I don't think have ever been done in mystery fiction before. <laughs> so that's kind of where I'm going with it. It is showing um, that era and that mm-hmm. what it was like to contemplate coming out, what it was like to mm-hmm. contemplate what was going to be the reaction, how you had to have almost two personas going on here. And mm-hmm. at the same time, be a mystery. I wanted it to be something that would entertain. And so, and a little bit of me. <laughs> yeah, it sounds wonderful. Um, the perspective and that, that conversation um, and having a queer protagonist um, at that time uh, and and helping people understand um, what it was like, um, you know, to be young and and then the AIDS crisis started looming right as you're sort of coming into your yeah. your own. I was uh, reflecting on that with a friend uh, recently because of um, how many people in college, I didn't know any, but, you know, I mm-hmm. know I worked in theater. So yeah. I know oh, so yeah. many people who didn't live to be 25. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that people understand the, the depth or or that we lost um in in artists and and people um who are missing now because they would be our age and still creating and things i mean it's really there's a dearth um and and that crisis i mean it's hard to hard to articulate um and i and i'm a straight woman so i i wasn't a gay man um coming out in and sort of dealing with the fears of dying. I mean, it was, a, a, you know, although being a straight woman, there were also <laughs> some, some concerns. Oh, there are. Yes, there are. And so for, for that, I would love to read something because that's something I don't know. Right. And so I was hoping that the reverse would also be true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's, um, it's an important conversation, mm-hmm. right? These days, especially to yes. help people understand. Um, so what, what is a little frightening to me is seventies, is considered historical <laughs> fiction at this point. So I laugh because someone, um, someone labeled it that. Yeah. And my agent and I started to protest. My agent goes, "Count." <laughs> and <Yeah>. I'm like, <laughs> "Count," and I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> I'm like, point well taken. Yeah, that's a moment, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So it is yeah. on the cusp of being historical, which makes me. And do you think so? You you're envisioning four, according to your your bio. But do you, are you envisioning this could be more short stories? Yes. Yeah, um, short stories are kind of easy for me. We haven't talked, but about with running the Crippen and Landrew, which takes a great deal of time. Um, short stories are something I can do, um, especially the last two years when I haven't had access to any materials. Um, I'm just now picking the two books up again and kind of dust them off and take a look at them. And the good news is they were much better shaped than, than I had thought they were. So when I started reading, I'm like, oh, these aren't too bad. And so I'm kind of moving forward from that. But at the same time, um, since I didn't know when the libraries would reopen, this was kind mm-hmm. of a thing where I could say, I'm not going to commit myself to a novel or another book or anything like that. I'm going to do some yeah. short stories and the short stories that they say, Hey, we're open. Then I can kind of continue to work on the short stories without too much time being spent on them when I'm trying to work on the books as well. I hadn't really considered how the pandemic derailed people writing yeah. 
or doing research and things like that. So that's, you know, losing two years is a, is a big deal for you. Yeah. It was a long time to, I mean, to wait. Um, and there was nothing that we could get out of them. So even a much less intrusive thing was Crippen and Landrew, which I run has done an Earl Stanley Gardner collection. Well, the collection that we had done, we just sent an email to the library and someone had pulled the short stories that we had requested, taken snapshots of all of them and sent them to us. So maybe a week to get all of the short stories. Outside, the then that was outside the pandemic. When the pandemic started, it was closed. So all of the stories are locked away. And so I'm back to the old, if I wanted to find a short story, I have to go and kind of talk to all the booksellers and say, hey, do you have a copy of this? Hey, do you have a copy of this? Because I want this story. Mm-hmm. So it was back to that kind of thing. And I just about accumulated enough for a, another Earl Stanley Gardner collection for Crippen and Landrew. And boom, of course, then everything reopens just about the time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the way it always goes. So talk to me about about the the company and and what that's what that's about i mean you wear so many hats jeffrey so um well actually i this goes back to my it background and i mentioned i got a degree in it doug green operated crippen and landrew he founded it he ran it for almost 25 years he was struggling with his website back in about 2014 and it was some simple things that needed to be done. And so I was like, I can do this. It's no big deal. And so I started working with him on that and working with the website. And the website had some problems coming back from being offline for a while. And so then I switched him over to a new website with more up-to-date software. And then I was like, we really need to have some um, ebooks here too. And so then I started working with him on the ebooks. <laughs> and so by that time... I was pretty much involved. And when he wanted to retire, he asked me if I would be interested in because he knew I was just a couple years away from retirement myself. And so I took over and have been doing that for now. It's going to be five years. And it's so hard to believe that time has flown like that. So, so what does um, Crippen and Landrew, you know, you publish, you, you know, how would you define yourself in the space? Uh, we are very segmented in what we do. We only publish single mystery author short story collections. So it is a mystery writer who has written presumably 12 to 15 short stories that we want to publish. And we do some contemporary authors. And we also do um, what they call lost classics. And the lost classics are the 40s and 50s. people that I was familiar with from my teens. And so it's a lot of fun to be able to do that. And do you, um, is it hard? There are some authors, and this is something our writers need to think about, is their literary um, legacy and how they they, they <laughs> give somebody, appoint somebody um, to, to maintain their rights um, after they're gone. So that when somebody like you comes along, you know, 20 years after they're gone says, I would love to publish a book of their short stories. Somebody needs to be able to say yes, otherwise you can't do it. So, um, so do you like, is it challenging to, to get all that together to deal with the States and all that sort of thing? Yes, it can be, it can be incredibly simple 
Mm-hmm. Um, if the estate still has an agent, so Earl Stanley Gardner, um, his grandson owns the estate, and he, this grandson has a literary agent who takes care of everything. And that is so mm-hmm. nice because you just go to her, tell her what you want, and everything gets done. Um, and then we have other cases where it is really another mystery trying to find out what happened to the estate of a particular yeah. author. Yeah. So um, we just signed not too long ago um, the Lockridges. So, and they did the Mr. and Mrs. North series um, back in the 40s and 50s, which yeah. was so much fun. And so um, we had to, but they do have an agent, but the agent, I guess, wasn't really hadn't really promoted themselves as being the agent for the estate. And so it's been difficult to try to find them. Um, There are other cases where, I'll use Craig Rice. Craig Rice didn't leave a will, so they went to her nine children. Oh, no, I'm sorry, her three children, and one of the three children has nine children. So you have just a huge number of people who are involved with it. So it's just... um, difficult in those cases um they finally have you know kind of now that they realize that there are people interested in it they've kind of kind of aligned themselves but at the time there were i get this right there were 12 grandchildren wow and so now they kind of have one person who deals with each one of the different children so and that kind of helps well because it's it's interesting think about how many people are forgotten just because the family can't agree or they don't well, <laughs> somebody who says, you know, we should make ebooks of grandma's books because, yeah. you know, people should know who she is. Well, when I first reached out to them, none of them were involved in the mystery community. And so they're like, why would anyone want to read her stuff? And I'm like, because she's the big deal. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, really? I'm like, oh yeah. And so um, one of the grandchildren came to a mystery conference with me and I showed around, and all these people were like, oh, I love your grandmother's works. And she was like, I did not know any of this existed. And so she was thrilled to know that her grandmother's legacy was still there. And over time, they've kind of gotten more involved with it. But it's just, you know, still something that they weren't aware of because they weren't involved in that community. They were involved in their own, you know, things that they were involved in. So Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's different when it's family, but it is a cautionary tale for writers. Um, No matter no matter what you think your work product has been like, make it clear how you want it to proceed afterwards, because. And it's much easier to find if the author, I hate to say this, but the author was straight and married and had a lot of kids. Those are so much easier to find than it is to have someone who was single with no mm-hmm. children because yeah. then it has to go to someone else. And then you're like, mm, and you're trying to trace down a whole family tree rather than just the lineage. So, yeah, yes, I strongly, yeah. if you ever want a, any kind of article on this for um, the sisters of crime newsletter, let me know. <laughs> this is my big beat. Everyone should have this. Oh, well, I, you know, I will, I will be following up with you on that. I think Please that it's or a webinar or a conversation because I do think we don't think about it enough no. and, and um, you never know what's going to hit in 25 years and you might as well make somebody 
some money <laughs> and also keep your name going. Yeah. I mean, you worked. Yeah. I mean, because now um, you've seen a lot of audio books too. So yes. 20 years ago, it was the eBooks. Now it's getting to be audio books. And that's another area where people didn't think. And so a lot of contracts did not have anything about audio rights and things like that. And so. And some of these older mysteries, like the um, Ellery Queens, mm-hmm. work very well in audio. I mean, they're, <laughs> yeah, they're, they're pretty fun. Mm-hmm. I have one in my car right now. <laughs> um, so you pub- you're a publisher, you're a nonfiction writer, you're a short story writer, mm-hmm. um, retired t- teacher, uh, you know, so you've immersed yourself in, in writing and publishing and everything else for your career. Mm-hmm. Is there something, is there advice that you wish you'd gotten? Is there terrible advice you got? Is there advice that you wish someone had told you about navigating this life, this career? Yes and no. I would have been nice to receive advice, but knowing me as I do, I'm not sure I would have taken it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those learners. I'm the learner that my teachers always hated because I had to learn through experience. So mm-hmm. hands-on experience, and that is how I learn. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I wore myself out from doing a nonfiction and fiction book twice in three years that it was just, yeah. at that point, I'm like, okay, I've learned at this point, I can't do all of this. I don't think if someone has said, you can't do all of this at the same time that I would have listened. So yeah. um, I think that probably that this is a business would be good advice to know. I mean, it's fun to do all the stuff, but at some point too, you have to kind of focus on what you're doing mm-hmm. and kind of, I hate to use branding, but it is kind of a branding thing of where mm-hmm. you are, you get to be known as a particular type of writer. Um, and so therefore you should tend to go with that because that's what people are going to expect from you. Mm-hmm. It's also, everything's changed so much in the last few years. Oh, yeah. Um, not just in the world, but in the in the industry and what's available and ebooks and, and audio and and everything else. But also, what's changed is um, awareness and and raising up marginalized voices, mm-hmm. and which is hopefully not a brief moment. It's a change, right. and we all need to pay attention. So it's a change. Are you encouraged by the state of the publishing world right now? Are you discouraged? Are you waiting to see? How do you feel about what's everything that's been going on? I am encouraged overall. Right now, I am very discouraged about politics. So we, we aren't going to talk about that. But at the same time, I am very encouraged by the mystery community. And I'm not surprised because the people I know in the mystery community, I just love dearly. Um, they are the best people in the whole world. I could not ask for better friends. I could not ask for more fun friends or more thoughtful friends. Um, I'm not at all surprised that this is coming to be. Because out of that love and out of that community, I can't see it going any other way. But then politics and all of that just depresses me. So I try to stay away from that. So I worked on diversity inclusion for many, many, many years throughout my business careers. And mm-hmm. so um, there were some times when I worked in business that I despaired that things were ever going to change. Um, but I, that's not what I see. And it really does me a lot of good to see this happening now. Because back then when I was in business, you know, that's the way it's always been done. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm sure you've heard the same in your life too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that would got to be discouraging. Um, especially with teaching and teaching and all that's going on right now with mm-hmm. the don't say gay in the schools and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. I'm glad that I left and it sounds terrible. I love the kids, but it would, I would have a hard time with that kind of demeaning legislation that's going on right now. So I feel very lucky that I am in this community and I am seeing all these changes happen. Yeah, I I hear what you're saying. I also, um, I don't know that it's all political to say that legislating hate and making people more marginalized Mm -hmm. uh, is political. I think that it's just um, it's not, it, it's a reaction to change. Um, but we all need to work on this together oh, yeah. in yeah. order to create the change in the world we want. Uh, um, so it is a very discouraging time right now, yeah. um, as far as that goes, but, but I am encouraged by how many people are, are working hard to make change. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm also, again, we're, I, you know, I'm encouraged by the younger generation. Oh, I feel like, what yeah. can I do to help you? Yeah. Because we all need to get out of the way. <laughs> yeah, because um, when I was teaching, I had I taught in the middle school level, and I had students come out, and they'd say something, and I'd be like, when I graduated high school, I said, I think there was one student in our yeah. class who was out at that time. Mm-hmm. I'm like, now that I'm older, I said there were obviously more than one student, <laughs> and I said, and those people are my friends now. But I said, you yeah. know, it's just back then that was unthought of, and yeah. And so I just told them how proud I was of them that you know this things have changed, and they're willing to do this at this age because that was unthinkable fifty years ago. Well, and they're definitely not going back. I mean, oh, no. you know, <laughs> I mean, they're they're you know, my nieces and nephews inspire me in so many ways because they're just like you know, rolling their eyes and even having conversations about things, um, which is how it should be. Oh, yeah. Um, One of the first days of the pandemic, one of my students sent me a note and said, Mr. Marks, you don't have your pronouns on your ID. (laughs) I just laughed. (laughs) I was like, I'm like, I'm so caught because that's absolutely true. I was focusing on doing a million things, trying to get things set up to teach online. And I said, yeah, I forgot. And that's shame on me. And they're And they were like, oh, really? They thought, oh, I thought you were going to yell at us. I'm like, no, I'm not going <laughs> to. I'm going yeah. to be happy that you caught it before I did. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it is remarkable. And, and we're all learning and adjusting and changing and growing and, and thinking about things. But um, there's some wonderful work that's being done, some wonderful organizations um, that are out there to um, raise the voices and raise the profiles yeah. of um, of marginalized writers. There's Queer Crime Writers, um, which is a, or, an organization I think you're involved with. Yeah, um, that is, um, you know, uh, that is lifting up voices mm-hmm. and it's follow them on social media and, and you know, retweet and, yeah. and celebrate. And Crime Writers of Color, of course, is oh, another organization. Sisters in Crime was started as an advocacy yeah. organization for women and has increased its, its, um, its lens to include um, other marginalized writers. But what I think is interesting is even when we think about the work of Sisters in Crime from the outset, it's not, we're not done and it's 35 years old. So um, this isn't 
you know, that can be discouraging unto itself, mm-hmm. but it's also how lucky are we that we can all work together to make this change. Yes. Yeah. It's an exciting time. Yeah. I'm amazed with the things that Sisters in Crime has done within the last couple of years. It's been amazing to me. It's a wonderful organization with incredibly passionate members yeah. and, mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, you couldn't ask for more. And as you pointed out a couple of times, the crime writing community is an incredibly kind and generous community for the most part. Yes. Um, and I think that that's not all true of every genre. Um, I think we all work it out on the page somehow. So we're much nicer <laughs> when we see each other. Um, but it's a really wonderful community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I made the announcement yesterday that the first story was going to be an Alfred Hitchcock Mystery Magazine this month. And the outpouring was just amazing. And I'm just like, yeah. wow. Yeah. I was expecting a couple of attaboys and that was it. Move on. And uh, it was over a hundred people who congratulated me and just find these people and big name authors. And I'm just like, this is just amazing. Yeah. It's a wonderful community. Mm -hmm. Um, And community makes all the difference as you're navigating this. Yeah. Um, So with your multi hats and your, um, and your multi projects, what are you working on now? Are you are you really focusing on Earl Stanley Gardner I now? Am, I mean, do you have a timeline on that? I mean, where are you with that project? I am giving myself a timeline. Um, so the um, library recently opened up again. So yeah. I'm looking at my schedule, trying to figure out one more trip to look through those boxes with a very specific focus this time. I had gone been several years ago now, but I had gone and spent about 10 days there and gone through quite a few of the boxes, but I was overall looking at Earl Stanley and also looking at um, this Court of Last Resort. And this time it's going to be very specific elements of the Court of Last Resort. So talk a little bit about the Court of Last Resort. Well, the Court of Last Resort got started because Earl Stanley Gardner didn't interview with the Saturday Evening Post. Um, It was a three-part interview and later made into a very tiny book. (laughs) But, um, and you can see it right over the shoulders. Okay, yeah. (laughs) And so um, the book talked about Earl Stanley as a person. And one of the things that Earl Stanley Gardner was passionate about was helping the underdog. That's one of the things he loved about um, the law was the law was equal, he felt, to all and should be available to all. And for the era that he worked in, one of the peoples who were marginalized at that time in that area um, were the people who had come over from China and mm-hmm. wanted to get a better life and started working, typically with the railroads, and they were not treated well. Mm-hmm. Well, he had been raised um, and taken all over the place by his father, who was a mining engineer. And so he got to know a number of these people and he just could not understand why they were being treated this way. So part of his early legal career was about helping these people. And so he talked about in that trying to help the underdog, trying to help the person who wasn't getting a fair break. Well, apparently the Saturday evening post is carried in prisons around the country. (laughs) And so you had all of these, inmates reading this and writing him letters and saying, I'm, you know, I'm working on my 30th year. 
and I've never been given parole for a minor theft violation. Um, I was convicted of murder. They had said that um, that the person that the eyewitnesses had seen had dark hair, dark eyes, and I'm a redhead. And so he was getting these cases were, were just egregious and the um, miscarriages of justice. And so he talked to one of his former editors, um, Harry Steger, who had been um, at Argosy Magazine and still was at Argosy Magazine and talked about it. He did not want to just be the advocate for this. He was concerned, and rightly so, that if he went in, found the problems um, with the case, and presented it to the legal people in the state, so the attorney general, the governor, all those people, that they were going to get a pushback. And he was absolutely right. They did. That's the way it's always been. That's the, you know. And so they're not going to be advocates for these inmates. So he needed to come up with a way to get more voices speaking out against these injustices. And he did that by writing articles and at the end telling them who they should write to um, at the state level or at the local level to change these to change these problems. And so that's what he did. He would take a case and he would say, look, um, some of them were just jaw-droppingly, horrendously. Um, right, miscarriages. Yeah. Oh, it was terrible. Um, one woman was convicted of killing her landlady with um, a can opener. The one had died of natural causes. Mm. <laughs> and so here's this woman sitting in state prison for years. And actually the warden of the prison said, I don't believe this woman is a killer. I can't see her ever killing someone in this manner. And so Earl Stanley Gardner looked into it and um, had a second autopsy run on it. And lo and behold, she had died of natural causes. Wow. So the, and wow. that was just one. And there were thousands. Wow. So that's part of his legacy as well, is, is yes. doing that work. And it's one that's kind of outshined by everything else. They did have a Court um, of Last Resort television show that lasted one season and went off there. Um, it was kind of awkward in that they changed the names of everyone in it. They had people playing the Court of Last Resort, but then the Court of Last Resort itself actually showed up at the end. And so it was not as well put yeah. together probably as it should have been. And so... Um, it was dropped after one year, and so that's not going to compete with Perry Mason, which went on for years and years. Um, right. And so, you know, that's what's become his legacy is the Perry Mason show. And unfortunately, this has not been something that's been looked at. Mm. Well, I'm glad you're going to be looking yeah, at it. It's fun. It's different to do. Definitely different. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, as part of um, her legacy with Sisters in Crime, the immediate past president, Stephanie Gale, mm -hmm. uh, wants to raise $35,000 this year for the Innocence Project. Oh, really? I did not know that. Very similar, um, you know, Ooh. similar goals and, and, and everything else, because it is it is terrible. The people yeah. are in jail who shouldn't be. And um, and they stay there unless somebody can intervene, especially if they're not, they don't have means. Right. Um, you know, that's just, mm -hmm. yeah. justice is not always justice. Well, so. I'm glad to know about that. Cause that's something I will definitely be donating time and energy to. 
Oh, thank you. I will, um, I will put that in the show notes, the link to that. And, um, and we will be sharing that some more, um, over the next, that's, that's what she wants to do. And I think it's a wonderful thing. That's wonderful. That's really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Making change. That's what we all have to do as much as we can. Yeah. Well, I have really enjoyed this conversation and we could keep going, but um, I don't want to take up more of your time. Um, congratulations on the story that's Thank coming you. out. Um, congratulations on the work. I can't wait to read the Earl Stanley Garner biography. So no pressure there, but you know. It's about halfway through the first draft. So it's getting there. I was really put making a big push this year on both books and just putting as much time as I can into getting both of them to where it's just going to be sitting down and editing and editing and editing. Yeah. And it's a different muscle. I mean, academic writing and nonfiction writing is a very different muscle. So, um, but it's exciting and I'm glad you're doing it and um, good luck on the publishing part of your life too, because that's also a lot. So thank you for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed this. I did too. I did too. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.